You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I'd like to welcome my guest, Eleftherios Milonakis. Uh, he's the Charles C.J. Carpenter, uh, MD Professor of Infectious Diseases, Professor of Medicine, Assistant Dean of Emergency Medicine, and Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Brown University. We're going to be talking today about uh, his study on microbial pathogenesis and host responses. Uh, it's an excellent call we have ahead of us, and Eleftidios is working on um, how to deal with with uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria that uh, can can kill people, such as MRSA. Uh, so it's a very important area that he works in. Uh, antibiotics, there's very few new ones coming, if any, and antibiotic resistance has been rising in bacteria uh, a lot because of the use of antibiotics over the past few years. So this is a critical thing that he's working on. So I'd like to welcome him. Thank you. You're very welcome. I'm uh, with the Department of Medicine, not Emergency yeah. Medicine. So, okay, link so much with emergencies. No problem. So, what's the focus of your work currently? What are you working on most recently? Uh, our last decade has mostly been on infectious diseases and uh, drug discovery. So that is uh, what we spent uh, most of our uh, time uh, investigating. When you say. Um... Infectious diseases, are these um, diseases that happen in the first world or um, like third world countries? Where do they happen and what are they? Yes. Uh, so, uh, Rich, our main interest has to do with uh, resistant bacteria uh, and especially this uh, pathogen called MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And uh, unfortunately, this is uh, now widespread it happens uh, in the uh, every country and uh, in the U.S. as well as uh, the rest of the world and even including uh, developing countries. So this has become very widespread and a real uh, problem uh, for, uh, for patients and for physicians to treat. Yeah, I thought Staphylococcus aureus is a very common uh, microbe that exists in us on a, uh, a a beneficial basis. Is this a certain strain or 
you know, what, what have you identified? How does it become pathogenic? Well, uh, yes, uh, Staphylococci are very common and uh, they live on our skin uh, mostly and uh, they're part of what we call a microbiome of the skin overall. Uh, however, that is the a particular uh, group of, uh, of Staphylococci that is called uh, coagulase negative and especially Obviously, Staphylococcus epidermidis, epidermis is the skin, epidermidis is the type of, of Staphylococci that are not very pathogenic, and, and uh, they, they are part of, of our skin flora. However, Staphylococcus aureus also can colonize uh, individuals, but has a lot of virulence factors that make it very keen to, to cause infections. And what happened uh, uh, on top of that is that uh, it progressively developed resistance to uh, a particular class of uh, antibiotics, the penicillin-like antibiotics like uh, methicillin. And that is what became MRSA, which is the methicillin-resistant type of, of Staph aureus, which Staph aureus is the pathogenic Staphylococcus. The interesting part about uh, Staphylococcus and what makes it very concerning is exactly what you said, Rich, that it is a very widespread and can colonize. So it can live on our skin, it can live uh, uh, and can spread from person to person. So for the most part, one out of three cases of this resistant bacteria that come to, to the hostel with severe infection, one out of three patients comes from, from the outside. They are not even hospitalized at the, at the time of their diagnosis. Uh, uh, I remember uh, one, of, uh, one young uh, woman that came with a very severe uh, infection uh, from MRSA, and uh, she was uh, just 20 years old. She had never been admitted to the hospital, and she came and she was uh, septic, and uh, and she had to go to the ICU, and unfortunately, this is uh, very common. And there are some populations that are even more prone to get MRSA infections, but essentially, uh, most everybody can, uh, can develop a, a, an infection like that. Where does... Um this particular type of bacteria exists when it's not causing harm? Where does it exist on us? Is it in the skin? It is in the Where? skin. It is uh, especially likes uh, the environment of the nose, the uh, outside uh, one third of the nose. It's uh, some, uh, a place where we usually try to screen when uh, patients get admitted to the hospital. We try to see if they carry this type of bacteria. So that's the place where we screen. And the majority of people that are colonized with, uh, with MRSA they, or other Staph aureus, they are going to give us a positive test when we test uh, a, a swab from their nose. But it can be on our skin, it can be on the armpits, it can uh, even uh, colonize some abiotic surfaces. So that makes uh, the decolonization, uh, trying to prevent infection, trying to trying to prevent infection and, and, uh, and uh, uh, take away the colonization, very difficult because it, uh, it often fails. 
uh, due to the widespread of this bacteria. So what, what one theory, you know, again, it's my theory, but if they're living in, you know, essentially homeostasis or they're happy in all these places on our skin and other surfaces, what is keeping them in check? What is keeping them happy? Is it other microbes like yeah, the availability of food? Why do they get to a state where they go crazy? Well, there is an, an easy answer there, and there is a, a more in-depth answer. So I'm going to give you the easy answer first, and then we'll try to venture into a, a little more on the complexity of the issue. So the easy answer is that uh, if they're on our skin or uh, in our mucosal surfaces, the, the skin and the other uh, uh, barriers that we have against the pathogens work very well. It prevents the, the Staphylococcus from entering our bloodstream. It prevents the Staphylococcus from spreading to our heart valves, to our bones, uh, to cause uh, an abscess. So it keeps it in check just by the fact that uh, there are barriers that exist uh, and they're part of, uh, of our body. Now, uh, and then once we have a simple trauma, like a scratch, or if an IV drug user uh, uh, uses a needle that is colonized with MRSA, or uh, we are in a motor vehicle accident, for example, where uh, we have uh, a, even a, a minor uh, a break into our uh, barriers, then the Staphylococcus will penetrate and will start spreading through the bloodstream and become pathogenic just because it broke through this main barrier. Now, this is the easy part, as I said before, the easy part of the answer to your question. The more complex part has to do with the increased understanding that we have for that not everybody is equally uh, susceptible to pathogens. So it's not only the barriers, but it's also the host responses, the previous exposure of the host to the pathogen, and also the overall immune uh, status of the individual. Uh, people that are, uh, who are immunosuppressed, for example, people that uh, who are neutropenic, uh, individuals uh, that are at the extremes uh, of uh, extreme age groups certainly are more prone to develop more severe infections. Nevertheless, uh, this and also there is person-to-person variability. We still haven't understood exactly the different components of that, but uh, not everybody responds the same way to the same pathogen. Do people have MRSA on their skin and in their nose, or they have a different strain that is not MRSA? Like, how can you even tell that a given staphylococcus is resistant or not? Can you tell by the surface coat it has, or just by its behavior, or do you sequence it? Like, how do you know? Yeah. So, so this is this is something that we do routinely. Uh, overall, you should keep in mind that uh, a number of of, of, of uh, different categories of individuals, they have a significant colonization percentage to, uh, with MRSA. And, and uh, for example, uh, athletes, especially collegial athletes, 
they are at risk of becoming colonized with MRSA. Patients in the ICU, individuals that have uh, required dialysis uh, because of, of renal failure, of course, uh, they, they can have all those categories, they can have up to 10% or more of, of the individuals that belong to these categories can be colonized with MRSA. So this is, this is just to give you a frame of how common MRSA colonization can be. Now, uh, how do we test? How do we know if it's MRSA or not? Well, as, as I mentioned before, we routinely screen uh, patients that get admitted to the hospital, especially those that get admitted to the intensive care unit for colonization with MRSA. And uh, we used to do a simple culture and, 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 and grow them, but now there is a, there are specific media and also there is a molecular assay, PCR-based assay, that quickly gives us a, a, a result if the person is colonized with MRSA or not. If the person is colonized with MRSA, we have to take some uh, particular precautions in order to try and prevent spread of MRSA to others. And uh, we have to wear gloves. We have to probably use uh, a, a separate room just for, for this pa- patient, etc. So if you swabbed a healthy person, would you expect to find any MRSA or no? It depends on the category, but it can happen. As I said before, uh, collegial athletes are colonized uh, overall 10% or more. Actually, collegial athletes have uh, higher rates of colonization with MRSA than uh, patients in the ICUs, which is remarkable. Uh, Non-collegial athletes, pro-athletes also, you I'm sure that you've heard every so often, every couple of years, there is a, 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 a professional team that has to close down their facilities and fight MRSA and try to decolonize. And there are uh, well-known athletes that have come out, you know, have, have, have become public, have, have, have gone public with their stories of MRSA infection that uh, complicated their uh, surgeries and operations and procedures. So even even the, the healthy people, the athletes, the young athletes in particular, they are also very keen to become colonized because colonization is part of uh, living in a community, essentially, of other people. So 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 it's not it's not that you need to have an immune system that uh, has a defect necessarily in order to become colonized. Uh, uh, and, and it's unfortunately uh, uh, quite common. But what if instead looking at it as a pathogen, it's just a commensal organism, and it's you know it's it's mutualistic with us for the most part, but then conditions occur under which it proliferates, like C. difficile in your guts. If you look at it in that respect, then maybe perhaps there are other microbes or other things in addition to the immune system that are also commensal with us, that are keeping it in check. And if you looked at, let's say, the entire microbial constituent around MRSA, when in a healthy person versus a sick person, perhaps you'd see like other species of bacteria that were there or not there under different conditions that MRSA was in, you know, infectious stage, non-infectious stage. It's just yeah. another way to think about it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's no good. Yeah, there is no question about it. There is no question that the, your your thinking is on the right track. Indeed, indeed, uh, there 
it's, it's very reasonable to assume that there is an interplay in the colonization status between the uh, MRSA bacteria and the microbiome that exists uh, around, uh, around it. Uh, we, I don't have any hard data to, to tell you because this is something that we want to study, what is the interplay between the host responses, the MRSA and the microbiome around it. Because you're looking at uh, at a situation where you don't know uh, the causality. Maybe you can say one step back, maybe the microbiome of the individual get disrupted. The skin microbiome, for example, or the microbiome in the in the nose gets disrupted first and makes the individual more prone to develop colonization with MRSA also. So going your thinking one step even further, uh, you can even assume that uh, that the, the, there is some causality between the disruption of the of the local microbiome and the development of the colonization. However, yeah. those studies uh, we we are looking into those. What, what I can contribute to your thinking and to your question about it is a, a series of, of studies that we did just a, you know a month or so ago, where we took MRSA isolates. For, that uh, from people that didn't have an MRSA infection, they were just colonized with. And we found that the virulence traits and the resistant traits, the resistant traits of those isolates that they just called colonization, they were identical to those from uh, isolates, uh, those in isolates from bloodstream infections. So the, the MRSA bacteria that colonizers seem to be as virulent as those that cause infection. Further, substantiating your argument that those bacteria are very pathogenic, something must be controlling them beyond beyond the barriers of the skin uh, that keep them outside of our body. Yeah, I would think that it just sounds to me very similar to uh, C. difficile. It's always there. And then when a dysbiosis is caused by antibiotics, for instance, it allows C. difficile to proliferate because maybe it's, it's competitors and stuff that's keeping it in check is dying off. So it sounds like perhaps the same thing happens. Maybe, it's, maybe the mechanism even is due to antibiotics. Maybe it's affecting also the skin microbiome and maybe it's killing off the, the gatekeepers that keep you know, MRSA in check and allow it to proliferate. Yep, there is there is a similarity that I see there uh, on this argument. Uh, indeed, uh, we, we usually say that about one out of 20 individuals is colonized with C. diff. Uh, uh, and indeed, the, you know, uh, the colonization exists uh, as part of, of uh, how C. diff gets spread. However, there is one difference here. C. diff does not need to penetrate the mucosal barrier in order to cause infection. So just the disruption from the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics is enough when the rest of the microbiome is completely disrupted for, the, for C. diff to, to, to cause infection. Uh, for for uh, Staphylococcus aureus, it, yes, the uh, microbiome around it might keep it in check, but you really have to have a disruption of the barriers because Staphylococcus has to penetrate inside 
through the skin uh, or the mucosa in order to cause infection. Uh, that makes that could make some sense because the staph A is used to its current niche, and if there's a cut, now the bacteria you know enter into this new niche, and I guess the state of that new niche you know inside a cut, let's say, is preferential to their proliferation. So they're just able to do it because their conditions are better. It's like mm-hmm. someone living in a very harsh climate and they go to a beautiful climate and, you know, they have it easy. They proliferate. Yeah. So uh, in order to, to make it a, even more complex, uh, Staph aureus has a unique, a unique ability to go into this dormant stage that is called the persister cell that can avoid it's it's it is a metabolically inactive stage where the bacteria cannot be killed with antibiotics this is not of course unique to staphylococcus aureus but the percentage of staphylococcus aureus cells that can transform to this dormant state it's quite high in in a lot of cases a hundred percent of the cells of staph aureus can transform to become persister cells. So that makes the treatment extremely difficult. So it, it, the relapse rate is very high. And when, as a clinician, I have to go and give antibiotics to, to patients with staphylococcal infection, uh, I have to give even longer uh, treatments that are often toxic uh, than, uh, than in, in cases of with infections with other bacteria. So, so the, 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 the problem with, uh, with staph aureus is not only the colonization that is not only that is very common and very virulent and, and, and it has found a way to colonize us and, 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 and cause infection through that, but also the ability to, to stay uh, in this dormant state that it's very, very difficult. None of, of the existing clinical antibiotics can really kill uh, uh, the staphylococcus when it goes to this persister state. Well, that actually could be a very good thing. Instead of a broad spectrum antibiotic, why not target things that make it go into the dormant state or make it come out of the dormant state? So one way would be if you're infected, give you something that's very targeted that affects those MRSA bacteria specifically and makes them go dormant. Then that you have a lot in you, but they're not doing anything to you. They, I bet you they can't be virulent when they're dormant. That or, is... Yeah, they're yeah, prepared yeah. to keep them in their active state and fight the dormancy, and then kill them. You know? yeah. That is that is a spectacular thought, Rich. Indeed, indeed, this is this is uh, this is uh, a goal for us. the 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 problem is that this is very difficult. Uh, the only target that we can go after when the cells go into this persister state is the membrane of the bacteria, because this is always there. And the bacteria cannot really hide. They can hide their, you know, the, the, the protein synthesis. They can, uh, they can become dormant, but the membrane is membrane. They need it in order to, to survive, and we can target that. The problem is that membrane-specific uh, compounds and chemicals are often toxic, so, so the problem becomes that we have to find something that completely destroys the bacterial membrane of a dormant staphylococcal cell while, while 
it, it, it does not cause any toxicity to the membrane of the eukaryotic cells and the mammalian cells around it. That is, that is doable. That is something that has been of interest to us. And we feel that we have some unique tools to go after this target. However, this is not an easy uh, target uh, just because of the toxicity. But, but again, so when MRSA is in its dormant state, is it virulent or is it just sitting there sleeping? Is it even consuming material from the outside? Like how dormant is it? And again, is it virulent at that, at that point? It, it is. It is at that point, for example, let's say that uh, it is uh, on an, a case of osteomyelitis, a bone infection. I start the antibiotics, the staphylococcus, uh, we we assume will go into this dormant state. But when I, I take away the antibiotic, the MRSA will again express its virulence. So at the moment that I'm giving the antibiotic, at the time that I'm giving the antibiotic, uh, the staphylococcus it's, uh, is not metabolically active, so it's not causing an active infection. But, but as soon as I take the antibiotic off, it will the infection will relapse and, and will come back. So, so it's not something that I, 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 it's not good enough for me to put the MRSA into the dormant state once the infection process has started. Right, but it may be the easier of the two tasks to do that first. You know, maybe you have a whole bunch of MRSA and culture, you know, hit them up with thousands of different substances, see which ones put them into the dormant state. They don't have to be necessarily antibiotics, but you've at least partially won the battle if you can do that. You can, if someone's very infected and you could at least put their MRSA into the dormant state, that may buy them days, weeks, months of time for you to do other stuff or for the body to acclimate yeah. somehow, you know? Yeah, no, so, no question. No, no question. It sounds like you're, you're picking the harder of the two tasks, but the first one, I think, may be a lot easier, you know? No question. That's what we do with our antibiotics. We, we, we treat uh, staphylococcal infections, unfortunately, all the time. And the way to treat staphylococcal infections is indeed to give the, a prolonged course of existing antibiotics. So, and, uh, and, uh, and we, we are successful. The, the cost is that of toxicity. The cost is that of, of uh, unfortunately, uh, running the risk of high relapse rate. And high relapse rate means that uh, I, I don't know who is going to relapse or not. And that forces me to continue antibiotics for, for, for longer. But, uh, uh, but indeed, uh, that is, uh, that is, uh, that is uh, what we do right now. And, and what we, we try to do at the same time as a researcher is, uh, researchers is to, to try and find an active compound that will target antibiotics while it uh, will target MRSA while it's, it, is, it is in this persister form and destroy it without having to give the antibiotics, the clinical antibiotics, for uh, as long as we do right now. Do you know what the specific mechanism is by which methicillin kills them when they're not resistant? Because if you figure that out, and then you figure out what has changed inside the staphylococcus to acquire the resistance to methicillin, that might give you clues on you know, what has changed in it and then what to do about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the cell wall is the usual target of the beta lactams. That's the cell wall uh, uh, that that changes. Unfortunately, 
uh, while we are trying to, of course, come up with new antibiotics, and and uh, and we have had some successes uh, uh, as as a, as a field. Uh, we have had some some progress uh, and some compounds that uh, that are active against it. Uh, at the same time, unfortunately, resistance also moves on, and Staphylococcus aureus now there is uh, some resistance to even vancomycin, and and there are some strains that are uh, are uh, vancomycin intermediate at least, and also there is some increase in the average MIC, the, the amount of, of antibiotic that I, need, that I need to inhibit the growth uh, of the average uh, staphylococcus. So it's an uh, arms race in some sort where we, we try to advance the science. And uh, unfortunately, as it always happens, uh, bacteria also develop resistance as, uh, at the same time. Well, what if the whole thinking needs to be re- reordered? Forget broad strategies. Forget broad spectrum, because it seems like, at least in part, that it's not just the the bacteria you're targeting, but again, what's around it is. It sounds like again to me a critical element of keeping it in check. So if you do a broad spectrum, you're killing everything around it. So that it it, it does two things. It allows the bacteria to become resistant, you know, because it's adapting, mm-hmm. but it also kills off the surrounding potential helpers to keep the system in check. So if you didn't go broad spectrum and you thought about it differently, that may be the way to go about it. Go for specifics and never do broad spectrum because it, it seems like it's just a matter of time before it's going to fail. So like, why, you're why even abs- go there? Yeah. You're absolutely right that we ideally, ideally we would like to have narrow antibiotics. Uh, and one more reason to, to, to try and, and develop more uh, narrow antibiotics uh, a spectrum antibiotics is uh, the disruption to the microbiome because uh, more and more you use the uh, example of C. diff more and more when we give broad spectrum antibiotics we cause secondary effects by disrupting the microbiome and promoting resistance and promoting uh, a, a healthcare associated infections that are extremely difficult to treat and have their own mortality the problem is twofold. The first one is that uh, uh, the problem uh, is diagnostic. So there is a, a delay between the time that the pay, the individual get develops an infection and the time that I know the pathogen. It's remarkable to me how uh, we are still waiting for cultures and for bacteria to grow. Uh, Clinical microbiology just recently moved to the molecular era as far as bacteriology and mycology. Uh, We still, for the most part, most clinical microbiology uh, labs depend on the bacteria to grow, and that can take days, up to five days for bacteria to grow, be identified, and then develop an antibiogram. Me as a clinician, not knowing what is going on, I am forced to use broad-spectrum antibiotics because I don't know if the infection is because of MRSA, because of a non-MRSA gram-positive, a gram-negative, or sometimes even a yeast or a fungus. So I find myself in a bind where I would 
I'm trying not to disrupt the microbiome. At the same time, the patient in, in, in cases of sepsis, the mortality goes up by the hour. So I, see, I, I, see, I, see. I, don't, I don't know the pathogen. So that is, that is the main reason why broad-spectrum antibiotics and empiric use, where we don't know what the heck is going on, and we give two or three, sometimes four antimicrobials at the same time, uh, is, uh, is driving a lot of the resistance, a lot of the toxicity, a lot of the cost associated with infection. I remember uh, one time, uh, a few years ago, I, I needed to, uh, to do whole genome sequencing uh, to uh, some bacteria and uh, the, for my lab. And at the same time, I was on clinical service. And uh, between patients, I received a call from the sequencing center and they told me, oh, I'm sorry, we need to delay your, we told you that we're going to have the whole genome sequencing in five days. Unfortunately, we're going to, to, to have it back to you in seven days. And I was all upset. At the same time, I found myself on the clinical side to have patients that are septic, that I didn't know what was going on. They were in the intensive care unit. I was bombarding them with three or four antimicrobials at the same time. And then I would go to the micro lab and ask if we, if we have any information on what is causing the infection. And they would say they haven't grown yet. And I would accept that. So, so the clinical microbiology just recently uh, moved to the area of rapid, rapid diagnostics when, for the most part, rapid uh, molecular identification, even whole genome sequencing, was available to us uh, for quite some time now. So hopefully okay, that, so. Will, that will help us have a diagnosis that will allow us to use more and more narrow spectrum. Yeah, that makes sense. Why, why was it taking, when you say they were waiting for bacteria to grow, yeah. how much did they need, how much of a change did they need to see to say, okay, it's this, pro, this bacteria, that one? Like, what yeah. was the criteria? The, the first one is for bacteria to grow. And, and, and that when the bacteria are going to start growing on a petri dish depends on a number of things. A part of that is depending on the quality of the, of the specimen that you took, the timing, the number of bacteria there. It can be uh, one day. It can be five days. But they, they can't take the specimen and sequence it. They have to let it, they now, have to sit there and culture it. Up until now, uh, up until recently, there was no reliable diagnostic tool to do that. Now we are starting okay, to have okay. some tools that have gone through or are going through the FDA approval. So hopefully that will change dramatically and enable the wider use of narrow spectrum antibiotics. And then that hopefully will force or allow the pharmaceutical industry to shift their focus from broad-spectrum antibiotics to narrow-spectrum antibiotics. Having said, that, I see, I see. having said that, we have the other problem with the antibiotics, which is that almost all pharma has moved away from developing antibiotics. And now, and now antibiotic development was left for the initial part to academic labs, and to small companies and venture capital. And that is a major problem for our field. So uh, for all but the absolute sickest people 
would it make sense to do shotgun sequencing on them at T0 and then maybe eight hours later do it again and to see what's changing the fastest? And that might give you an idea of what, you know, what bacteria are proliferating the fastest and which one needs to be addressed. You know, would that be possible? And would that yeah. be a good solution? Yeah, there, there, there's a number of, of rapid diagnostic techniques that are coming uh, through, and we're quite excited about those. And indeed, indeed, uh, the window that we're looking at that is uh, uh, in real time would be something less than six to eight hours from coming to the healthcare uh, to the institution. Oh, right. oh, so from presentation. So even if we need to give one dose or two, do, two doses of, uh, of, of antibiotics, of, you know, blindly or empirically, how we call it, to, to, to use a better term uh, uh, or a euphemism, in any case, uh, when, when we, we, it is okay. The problem becomes that now with the broad spectrum antibiotics, we give them for four, five or six days and then, and then, by the time that you have the, the result, the, the patient is improving. It's a, it's a challenge to convince the physician of record to change the antibiotic. Because, because, you know, the patient was almost dead. They responded to these antibiotics. And now you're saying, oh, stop all these antibiotics that you're giving and give something that is very narrow. So the sooner we get this information, the earlier in the process we get this information, the less toxicity we're going to give, the more meaningful treatment we are going to, 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 to provide. And also, also we're going to be able to address the actual causes of infection. For example, if, if we know that this is a, you know, a, a GI pathogen, then we can say, let's do the CAT scan now and see if there is a, any any illness that we need to address in the GI tract, any surgery that, uh, that needs to be done. If it's a, a pathogen that, uh, that causes endocarditis, let's do the echocardiography uh, earlier on so we can start and, and get uh, serious about the underlying diagnosis uh, right from the get-go. So the overall prognosis is going to change and the overall shift will change. But it's not only the treatment part that needs to change, the treatment part will be based on the diagnostic part. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like uh, since pharmacy companies are not really doing much with antibiotics and that the whole uh, thought process behind it really doesn't uh, work, at least for very long. I mean, it really needs a rethink, it sounds like. So maybe why not? you know, do it in a very different way. If the support's not there, even if you did find, a, you know, a new antibiotic, I mean, maybe it's, uh, this is really going to pave the way for, you know, targeted antibiotics and not broad spectrum. Yes, and also also incentivize the market. Antibiotics is, is a unique market where the better the antibiotic, the more we try to avoid using it because we want to keep it for the people that really need it, for the people that... Uh, that uh, will come with this particular infection. So antibiotic, uh, that is, and also the resistance is a, is a, is a risk. Uh, finally, the, the antibiotics are not priced, uh, are priced relatively low. Uh, although they, they can be a real uh, lifesavers. So for all these reasons, uh, pharma has moved away and the, the, the market 
has to be recalibrated. Otherwise, we are going to, to, to have more and more resistant bacteria and no antibiotics to use against them. I mean, you know, well, this is taking a little bit different direction. Have have you or anyone you know profiled the heck out of, you know, MRSA? What does it eat? What does it prefer to eat? What does it not prefer but will still eat? What metabolites does it make? What conditions does it like, pH, temperature, et cetera? Like, you know, have you profiled its its outer membrane? And what does it look like in a normal state versus a dormant state? Like, I would think that if if, if labs or lab profiled the heck out of it, you would definitely find some skews and some uniquenesses and some weaknesses in which to target this thing. Yeah, well, we... There maybe don't kill it, starve it to death. I don't know, maybe... There, there you know. are a lot of labs that are working really hard on answering every aspect of, uh, of MRSA and other bacteria. I have to tell you, this is not because of lack of trying. And we do have a reasonable success and progress. The... the the, the challenge is that, as I told you before, it's a moving target. The challenge is that academia cannot uh, fill the gap that is left by pharma moving out from drug development. I don't have uh, five or 10 or 20 or 100 uh, medicinal chemists uh, to work with and to prepare you know, uh, analogs of compounds that we discover. But we do have a lot of understanding of, of how the pathogenesis and the pathogenic traits of MRSA uh, make it a, a different pathogen. Uh, we, we have the same for other very resistant uh, bacteria. Uh, and so there is a lot of good biology and molecular biology behind uh, our effort. It's all on you, Lefterios. You got to solve I, it. I think that, uh, I, I hope, uh, thankfully, thankfully not. Thankfully not. I know, I know. I'm just teasing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, very, very complicated problem. Okay, well, this, this gives me a lot of insights. I think it'll give listeners a lot of insights into, it's not just a black and white picture. It's very, very yeah. Uh, difficult. Yeah, I hope that we try to to get you into the complexities of, uh, oh, yeah. of, of the different parts of what we do. Any uh, wild uh, thoughts about phages? Are there phages that target this particular bacteria in both the dormant and the non-dormant stage? Maybe they would be a way in. Maybe yes. using, um, you know, viruses to, uh, again, phages really to attack this thing. Yeah, the, the, as you know, the, there is a, a increased focus on on the development of this tool, uh, and uh, I, I, I don't have any insights against MRSA in particular. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there is uh, effort, uh, increased effort now. For the longest time, the development of phages was uh, was frowned upon by by most uh, Western uh, uh, in most Western countries and industries. But now there is a renewed interest. Uh, there is uh, at least one phage therapy that uh, uh, seems to to have uh, clinical data behind it. That 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 could be helpful. That could be helpful, especially in, uh, in you know decolonizing intestinal tract, uh, focusing uh, treatment. Uh, w- right now, any any novel avenue uh, should be explored. Yeah, phages may be a beautiful thing because they would be hyper specific to uh, you know that bacteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I guess you got to consider all options. You know. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I. I'm not an expert on phages, but uh, people that are uh, uh, very smart are working on uh, looking into that. I'm, 
okay. there are good presentations, good preliminary thoughts about it. And are you, oh, <clears throat> this will take us back to the beginning. We're almost done, but yeah. is this the, you know, it's enough, but is this the only uh, bacteria you're working on or are you working on a whole bunch? No, we, we have a different approach in our studies. We go from the question to try and, and, and find our way back. So that's that's how my brain works better. It's uh, I come up with questions. So we we do a number of things. We try to to use large data to help us find uh, associations with pathogenesis. Uh, we try to uh, to study the interplay between uh, different uh, pathogens and uh, pathogenic bacteria, non-pathogenic bacteria. Uh, so we, being a, a clinician, I mostly come up with questions, and then I try to figure out the tools going backwards uh, and, and trying to answer the question that I, I found in clinic. And sometimes that can happen with uh, mathematical modeling. Sometimes it can be answered by using large data. Uh, often it, it will happen in the lab uh, going through a, a, a wet experiments. Okay. Gotcha. Well, what's the best way for um, people to get in contact with your lab, you know, perhaps you and to, uh, you know, suggest collaboration or ask questions or read papers. Uh, email works fine. Uh, 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 any, any publications of, from our group, uh, it has our email and, and we, we encourage the feedback and, uh, and we, we depend on collaborators. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. That yeah. video, it's been a great call. I really appreciate you coming. Yeah, Rich, I enjoyed it and, and you enjoy the rest of your day. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.